You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Thanks for joining us for another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. My next guest runs a portfolio of, com- of companies providing technology, hardware, cultivation, and production. Uh, they service brands and cannabis retailers in regulated markets across 37 states. I'm sure 38. That's eventually once the the, when the next state, a couple other states go online uh, in the U.S. as well as Canada, Israel, South America, and the European Union. I'm joined by the CEO of Tilt Holdings, Gary Santo, here on Blunt Business. Thanks for being on, Gary. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So your company recently entered into an exclusive manufacturer supply and distribution agreement with Curalief International Limited. Definitely know them yes. down here in in Florida uh, to bring the Jupiter manufactured liquid Q vaporizer to new territories abroad for use as a medical device with extracts developed by Cureleaf International. International. So, talk to me about what's headed with this alliance here. Yeah, this you know Cureleaf is one of our longstanding uh, Jupiter customers. Uh, you know, I think they've they've been with us for quite a long time. In fact, their select pen is really Jupiter Hardware, uh, which has got the C cell atomizer in there. So it was sort of natural when they started talking about their European uh, efforts and seeing the work we were doing with other folks out there, such as Cannabo, where we received medical certification for some of our other proprietary devices. Uh, We have another called the L9, and that's the one that we have medical certification for in Israel. And we're working with Cannabo actually in the EU for the same device. Um, So when they started talking about wanting a potential medical device themselves, the Liquid Q was was the natural fit. So it's just extending what's already a pretty deep-seated relationship over the years. And really for us, it's a cost-effective way to start to open up the international market. We know the medical is going to be the first step and having the kind of devices we have that have gone through that medical certification process. And, and really it's a lot of work on the part of our team uh, and our, our, our uh, R&D lab to get that certification. It's really us who bears a lot of that, the brunt and the cost, uh, but we're happy to do it because it just opens up another layer uh, for the the depth of the relationships we can have. Yeah, well, what I've seen of the product, it's very sleek, a lot of different color scheme, and it's uh, nice looking, very nice. Uh, now, I also want to go ahead and talk to you about the fact that uh, at the Cannabis Capital Conference last year, uh, your company won Best Cannabis Partnership, and the industry accolade is Spotlights your partnership with the Shinnecock Nation to develop cannabis operations on a sovereign land. and we mentioned of that now within the story we're here uh it says quote tilt is a partner such a country at its core 
In early 2019, we pivoted our strategy to essentially build our business around true partnerships, starting with cannabis brand deals to bring popular brands to our market. That's the deal with the Cure Leaf is one example. And as the industry turned its focus to brand partnerships, we were already finding immediate successes and went even deeper when it, thinking about how to enter new markets, which brought us to the Shinnecock Nation. Talk to me about this venture. I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, but share with us uh, what, what happened here. Sure. So we were looking for ways to get into the New York space. Obviously, it's a very tough tough nut to crack. There's the 10 operators there, and they built a pretty good moat for themselves. And then trying to see, and remember, this was the early days, say 2020, early 2020 or so, mid-2020, trying to look for ways to get in when it wasn't even clear how adult use was was going to hit the map and how they were going to handle that. So uh, I think around that time, we saw a couple of deals getting done. There's the one that fell apart that MedMen had done that were just outrageously priced deals. And we began to think there's just no cost-effective way to get in because people were spending tens of millions of dollars just for the right to spend tens of millions of dollars to build a facility. Well, an investor connected us to the Shinnecock. And I grew up on Long Island, not that far from their native lands. And used to go out every Labor Day uh, to their uh, to their powwow that they would do uh, on an annual basis. So I knew of them. I had no idea they were looking to get into cannabis. We had a chance to sit down and talk to the leadership there, and we found out that they had been working on it probably since 2015, 2016, with the help of a group, Connor Green. And the reason they moved so slowly is they wanted to mimic New York State because they always saw wholesale as the play. Now, you fast forward to where we are today, and it sure feels like New York State is setting itself up to be a wholesale market with the way they're handling adult use and trying to restrict MSO participation. So it was more prescient than we probably even realized at the time. So they they had the land, uh, and it's sovereign land, so technically they could do whatever they wanted on that land. Um, but they've created a cannabis control commission there, and they're working on licensing. They just announced adult use licensing to go along with the medical licensing. Uh, and then they have sort of the, uh, you know, the, I would call it the quote unquote state, the Shinnecock state sponsored Little Beach Harvest. So that is sort of the official uh, cannabis operation for the Shinnecock. Uh, they already had that structured in a person in place, passion for the plant, but no real wherewithal on how to turn that into a commercial, successful economic engine. So after sitting and talking with them and understanding the pragmatic approach they took, I mean, if they were not a sovereign nation, if this was just another person who was interested in getting in the space, they would make a heck of a business partner. So it became pretty clear. It made a lot of sense to do this, sat down with them and worked with them for probably a year, just getting designs figured out, uh, trying to make sure we understood where things get placed. Because, you know, on top of the business side of things, you do have to take into account all the cultural aspects, uh, you know, how things get done on an Indian reservation on that sovereign ground. This is ground they've had for 10,000 plus years. So being respectful, moving at that pace and trying to come up with designs that would work. We were excited to break ground. Uh, I just saw a recent picture from yesterday. We've we've got paving down now. We're belaying the foundation. So we're going to start to see a building pop up in the next month or two for the dispensary. And then we'll move on to the cultivation and manufacturing. It's nice to see this kind of story coming to the forefront because we always hear about social equity so much, especially with the New York now and the implementation of adult use uh, cannabis now in their market. But it's one of those things where I never hear that much said about the indigenous and Native Americans that are in that social equity conversation. I don't, I don't know if you ever see that or not, but I mean, I always see where it's people that might have been uh, part of the illicit market, you know, they were legacy operators or they were disenfranchised, or they were incarcerated, but is it surprising sometimes to hear when you don't see where social equity shouldn't it include the indigenous, shouldn't it include the Native Americans, but they're always kind of left out of that conversation. 
It really should. I mean, social equity is, at its core is supposed to be as inclusive as possible. And, and look, it's not about getting necessarily equality, right? No two people on earth are equal, but it's about having equal access to equitable treatment. And that's what's key. And it really shouldn't matter whether you're indigenous, black, brown, whatever, whatever it might be, your gender, all of those things should all be one part of one big, broad social equity conversation. So for us, we're happy to sort of lead the way. And, and look, there's a lot of risk taking going on. I think that's the challenge that DC probably hasn't figured out yet, that for true social equity to occur, you can't just legislate it, right? Legislation is the start of it, but you've got to have buy-in at core levels because access to capital, access to business acumen, access to just the knowledge of all the things that we have learned from the regulatory regimes out there, that's all valuable to anybody trying to get into this space. So you just hand somebody a license because you made it you know, uh, you know, easier for them to get into the license pool, you really haven't done anything there. You've done, you've done lip service because you've got no access to capital. You've got no real wherewithal to potentially stand up a business in one of the most challenging mm -hmm. industries out there. So all they've done is set you up for failure. Um, so to me, this was about us taking a risk. And I'm lucky enough to have a board that said, sure, go spend 18 million on something you're never going to own. This will be owned by the Shinnecock forevermore. So, yeah. plus also the the issues when it comes to tax revenue, they're not even going to worry about the taxes because they're not the, the whatever taxes are accrued, they don't go to the state; they go to them. Well, yeah, they they have to generate their own revenue yeah. for all of their own you know on land uh, services, right? The police, the fire, any kind of road service, utilities, and everything. So they don't really have an economic engine. I mean, some of the tribes across the country they went the casino route, right? We've seen that, and that's been oh, an yeah. economic engine. But I think the other problem too is how they did it. I mean, you can go into a casino on sovereign land, and it's probably the place where you see the least number of sovereign nation members. They're not necessarily working in them. You know, some are, some are doing a better job than others, but they, they have their land and they get their money, but they're not really a part of the business as much as they probably should be. We're working here because the Shinnecock want to be a part of that business. We want right. to train them to run it and, you know, be able to be a self self-sustaining economic engine. I think you make a good point, Gary, because of the fact that if all these different sovereign nations, you know, I'm, I'm right now down in my backyard is a Seminole tribe. You think about the fact, or Mikasuki, and I'm just saying, yeah, they're running off of gambling. Gambling's making all the revenue. They're doing just fine with that. So before gambling was able to be allowed and, and so possible, that tobacco was always very popular. To go ahead and go into a reservation to get tobacco at such a much less rate without the taxes being accrued, it was always, always made sense to me as to even before legalization came in, why uh certain tribes did not want to enter into cannabis. Why wasn't that something that was more popular? I know they wanted to get into hemp in some cases, but not cannabis. And that always, I always ask myself, why is it that the Native Americans never got a chance to be part of it? Or I guess, like you said, they wanted to, the Shinnecock wanted to, but maybe the other tribes just didn't feel the same way. But I always thought cannabis would do well if it was within Native American reservations. And that would be something that would happen. But, you know, at least, I like what you're doing here. And like I said, that's a, quite a risk. Like you said, $18 million and you're not going to see any of it, but like it's the, it's the pledge you give out there. That's social equity to me. And that should be definitely in the same conversation or even more. So uh, I'm going to take us a commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a few things. Uh, you've you know, had a couple of chances to go ahead and be quoted on a couple of different headlines. Uh, one story from Vox about how is legal weed doomed to be run by big business. I've been talking about that for a while, but we're going to bring that up and other things here with Gary Santo, the CEO of Tilt Holdings. And by the way, 
you know, if you are, if you like to go ahead and uh, play in the stock market, you can go to the OTC markets and you look for their stock ticker symbol TLLTF. Website is tiltholdings.com. We'll be back with Gary and more questions after this. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more blunt business. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with Gary Santo, the CEO of Tilt Holdings. So before the break, I mentioned a story from Vox. It had a story that was titled, it was uh, published before the new year. Is legal weed doomed to be run by big businesses? So as they put weed in there, I'm like, okay, some hit piece coming on. But <laughs> let me just take a couple of things that were, I want to take a passage from this story. President Joe Biden's call to review the classification of cannabis, scheduling a schedule one illegal drug. Uh, contain one glaring pitfall for those who support legalization. According to advocates, declassifying cannabis completely is the only path forward for a legal cannabis marketplace, reclassifying or simply downgrading cannabis to schedule two, three, or four. That would put cannabis on the level of such drugs as oxycodone or ketamine or Valium and top any hope for recreational sales. It's been a tumultuous year of 2022 for cannabis policy reform in America. They talked about that. Uh, meanwhile, legal sales of cannabis are expected to grow, topping $33 billion by the end of 2022, with new adult use markets in several states, yet cannabis remains illegal under federal law. Da, da, da. Against the backdrop, one surprising trend they say here is emerging. Push and pull among pro-cannabis advocates who say that legalization may not be the right move after all, or at least not the way it's shaping up. Their concern, who will actually benefit from a federally regulated industry? So what do you think of this potential scenario, Gary? Yeah, I think it does raise a lot of questions. Uh, Who ultimately will regulate it uh, at the end of the day, right? So depending on where it lands, so you think about those higher schedules you talk about, Schedule 2 or even 4, there's a good possibility that cannabis manufacturers would have to go through FDA processes. Now, I came out of life sciences. That was my last stop before coming here. And, you know, I understand the processes. It's expensive. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many operators are set up to truly manufacture at FDA levels. And, and then, of course, comes the question for FDA approval. Are you talking clinical trials, things that this industry has never really focused on or really had the ability to do because the lack of interstate commerce has prohibited proper 
clinical trials to occur, right? I think there was a point in time where they were trying to do clinical trials with, I think it was out of Mississippi is where they were getting all of, all of the flour from and it wasn't the highest quality flour. So you were sort of gaming your own system to show that, hey, this isn't testing as, as we thought. So there's a whole pathway there that be careful what you wish for. If this doesn't get done the right way, you could be trading what is a crazy regulatory state-by-state -state environment for now a very onerous FDA process. And what does that mean for the broader industry? Um, so I think that's that's one piece that, you know, those people who are building out operations and, and look, do I think that necessarily favors big business over smaller? Not necessarily. I mean, look at the alcohol business. The craft brewers are doing perfectly fine. It took them a while to get going. Um, but the smaller shops actually have some ability to be nimble. Uh, they know the regs they have to meet. So, you know, to me, like everything else, we figured out as an industry how to get through the regs we were handed. We will figure out as an industry how to adapt to the regs as they're given in the future. But, you know, I think it would be nice to have everybody playing on the same team, pulling in the same direction. I think the lobbying is being fragmented. I think, you know, everybody's not sure what they're asking for half the time. Um, you know, and I think the way the words get thrown around, whether it's safe banking or descheduling, mm -hmm. everyone just assumes their own version of what that reality looks like. All I know, Gary, is I've been hampering about this since 2016. I always said, well, cannabis is going to be, it's going to be corporatized quickly. And all the, the, the influx of Fortune 500 executives, God bless them for coming in. They've professionalized this industry in a very short amount of time. And the MSO expansion we've seen over the last couple of years has been rampant. But they're all expecting that legalization comes in. And I already said uh, at the one, one of the end of year episodes of Blunt Business, I specifically predicted we're not going to see that passage of federal legalization probably for another three to five years. I'm pushing back the possibility that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. A bill getting to any president's desk, I don't see it. Not right now. So for me, I look at that and also see that with this, you know, and also, yeah, hey, free, free, free enterprise is free enterprise still for this industry at the end of the day. But it's like you said yourself, there are craft cannabis companies out there. They've found their way. Every state that comes online with their own cannabis program, they're all saying, well, social equity has to be a part of it. You the licenses, you have to have these particular licenses that are going to get this. And people can find, there's company, companies are going to find loopholes around that. Plus, you talk about the lobbying part. Hey, tobacco and alcohol. And we know farmers now involved in the lobbying in support of cannabis. We get what's going on here. There's a control aspect where if cannabis alone is not lobbying enough money, but all these other entities are doing the same, we see what's going to happen. They're going to come in and make their part to get their cut of what's happening here. There's mm -hmm. no doubt about that. What do you think? Yeah, I think from my perspective, and look, I know that the commercialization, the commoditization, people always talk about that. And they felt the grow would get commoditized first. I've always felt that after the grow comes the retail. Because here in Massachusetts, I think we have something like 275 retail dispensaries. I think we only have 400 uh, CVSs throughout the state. <laughs> so do you really need that many cannabis shops if it becomes legalized? No. The question I have, though, is if a lot is punted to the states, uh, the states could start to put up you know, put up their own barricades because they like the jobs. They like the taxes. They don't want to see those those jobs leave for the Midwest on the grow or, or something like that. So, you know, you could have someone like New York State say, hey, if you want to sell here, you're going to have to grow here and you're going to have to manufacture here. So what did you really gain? Can you have a hub and spoke the way agriculture and specialty manufacturing and specialty retail typically have? where I go to the most temperate climate and I go to where the labor is cheap and transportation is plentiful. And from there, I'm going to service the entire country. I don't know that you're going to get that. You might still end up with the same individual state structures that we've had to live with for this long. 
So the question I sort of have to a lot of these operators is, if you're not profitable yet, what were you hoping for? Where are you going with this? Because if the if depending how this thing breaks, you may still have to continue to operate the way you're operating now. And look, we've been able to at Tilt centralize a lot of the corporate overhead services. And all of our facilities are within a few hundred miles of each other. So we are able to get some, I would say, structural economies of scale. Um, but I'm still growing independent in Pennsylvania than I am in Massachusetts. It's not like I'm crossing borders here. It's just I'm trying to centralize as much as I can to get as much efficiency as I can. So, you know, I just I just think that the devil is going to ultimately be in the details. I don't think that legalization becomes this panacea that turns unprofitable massive companies into incredibly profitable companies. And you're right. If if there are others there who are leading the lobbying way, they're doing it with some kind of asterisk next to their their request no to make right. sure that they get their piece of the pie. They're all going to jump in. It's and it's not, not even I can't even, uh, it's like, I can't be one of those people that like watch politics and just complains. No, I just don't care. It's just like, it's going to happen anyway. It's just, you have to find your, your route in here and just realize that this industry has such great potential and look at how much has gone so far in the last decade plus. And so everybody's going to keep jumping in and yep, it still comes down to the fact that if, if there are certain companies that will not put money in to continue to go ahead and make sure that. I'm not worried about the heritage folks. I mean, they're great, but like, I also know that trying to keep some kind of, you know, legacy of cannabis and, and you know, the pioneers that brought it to the forefront, that's going to go away because cannabis is just going to be just part of like anything else. Everybody wants to come and see whatever, whatever particular edibles, beverages, consumables that are going to be on the store shelves, just the same as alcohol. And then being able to go and see, like you said, where dispensaries might not even be the only place you find it. Maybe you'll find some of the cannabis products that soon enough, at a CVS near you. You never know. Well, you know, I think what's, what's, no, it's it's true. And and what's important is what's your reason to exist as a company. So if you're in there at some point, Coca-Cola gave up the sugar cane fields, right? They did it because they had to, but that wasn't where they felt their future lied. And for us, you know, at Tilt, we've, we've chosen to stay asset light because we know that, yeah, the big grow is going to get commoditized and yeah, the retail is going to get commoditized, but that in-between space the specialty manufacturing, the specialty grow, that B2B supplier. I'm agnostic as a result, whether or not we sell online, we sell through independent retailers, we sell through MSOs. I want to make sure I've got the products they all want to carry and that the consumer really wants. And I'll get that to them at a reasonable price. And that's why we do our brand partnerships, because I don't know who Coke and Pepsi are going to be yet. There's a lot of interesting California brands that want to come east. They want to stay independent. We look for guys that have uh, depth of brand. So that this way they do have staying power. It's not just celebrity flower or something like that. So, you know, I think we're positioning ourselves that we'll be fine whether you get legalization or not and whether things get commoditized or not. This is sort of the vision we've had and the way we built the company. You uh, spoke with financial regulation news. And there was a quote. First of all, in this article, they mentioned this. So cannabis is now legal in 39 states, supported by 92% of the public. They didn't say where the stat came from, but either which way, uh, quote, the House seems to understand this, but the Senate continues to struggle. Failure to act by Congress ignores the will of the people and validity of the industry and places unnecessary risks on legal businesses. This must be a priority for the upcoming session and no longer minimize or kicked down the road. And as I mentioned before, we just had, we're recording this in the second week of January, we just saw the fight for the Speaker of the House being nominated and then finally being voted after 15 times in a very historic manner. And I say to myself, Safe Banking Act might find its way to a vote, but not legalization. 
at the moment we talked about it just before, but I've been asking others. I mean, to me, I know what the ramp is for federal legalization, full blown coast to coast, but safe banking act. There've been many attempts to try to either embed it into the national defense authorization act, the omnibus spending bill. It's not as if they're not trying to put this in. They obviously they want to get that, that bill. They already have it bipartisan. It's ready to go. It just has to get put into a vote. Let's get it in there. I don't know why they don't want to go and put it into standalone, but obviously, yes, they're going to have an issue where the public, the media is going to just take run with it because they, it's their onus they have. I don't know why. But safe banking, do you see that as something that could be passed this year? To me, that's, that's the easy one, right? That's the least controversial. It's when they keep layering all the other attributes and try to make this the one bill that's going to solve 100 years of prohibition and bad behavior with one brushstroke. Right. And you really can't. I mean, look, and Cory Booker was the one who's laying himself down. I won't even touch safe banking if there's no you know, A, B, C, D, E. And I thought it was kind of funny that McConnell came out and said, we think it makes sense for, for bills to actually only contain things that are pertinent to that bill. So let's stop putting other things in bills that don't belong, like putting in safe banking in the National Defense Act. So suddenly 200 and some odd years of pork barrel politics is going to come to an end because Mitch McConnell got religion. It's kind of ridiculous from that perspective. But I don't disagree. Let's stand us on two legs. You know, and let's right. remember that perfection cannot become the enemy of progress. We can do incremental changes. What they should be looking for is, look, we know the public vote is out there for cannabis. We know that the states are overwhelmingly putting things in place. We know that the lack of access to banking is actually hurting the people they're claiming to defend, right? It's not the big companies. In fact, after safe banking got shot down again, yet another big MSO came out and talked about how they got access to capital at great rates. This has happened now two or three times in a row. What you're not seeing is the local, local social equity applicant getting access to any funds, let alone funds at those rates. So there's no real argument against safe banking. Yes, we want more crime by having people driving around with a lot of cash and, and stores that operate on a cash-only business. Makes no sense. Right. Um, so it's yeah, you know, I'm not sure what they were thinking when, when they came out, and, and I think it was Senator Schumer said, we're going to get this done, we're going to get it done the lame duck period. Maybe he thought he was going to lose the Senate. And then suddenly when he yeah. didn't, he took his foot off the gas. <clears throat> I, I can't figure it out. He, he should have the votes. It, it doesn't make any sense. They've had a lot of time. Well, many times have they put it through committee, it's passed, they get it over here. And my thing is, I'm looking at myself, I'm like, part of the thing is also it's the media narrative. We have to make that point across why, if, if we have bipartisan support, I mean, and definite bipartisan support for cannabis, whether it's legalization, which was co-written, you know, the CAOA or the States Act or whatever there is, the same thing goes for safe banking. Why is the media still behind this whole, I mean, is it just big farmers just spending so much money? I mean, can't get away from the Pfizer ads. So like, oh, God forbid, cannabis gets a chance to be advertising on television or it gets anywhere because they still have to keep downplaying cannabis. They have to still keep going ahead and letting the, the lower Ingrams of the world go ahead and bash. Oh, big weed, big weed. We don't care what you think. They don't matter. It's like you want to just say, oh, there's just some kind of sanctimonious, uh, you know, this whole idea that, oh, there's still some kind of resentment towards us. Like we're back three decades ago. No, it's not. What a no, big I mean, difference you, this industry is right now. I'm just saying that right. the media wants to keep putting this out there. I guess it's probably because big farmers still paying them. 
I don't know. If you, if you discovered this plant today, you'd have two to three aisles at Whole Foods dedicated to cannabis-based products. Oh, yeah. Right? The, the miracle, if you didn't have the prohibition, if you didn't have the counterculture movements and all the different things that became associated with it over time, the crime and all of those pieces, uh, you know, I think then you might have had a different view. So you're kind of starting with, with one hand tied behind your back. But you sit there and you say, wow, 51%, that's considered a landslide in the political uh, election. You're north of 70 plus percent of the population saying we are for legal cannabisation, a, a cannibal, uh, cannabis at some level, right? Maybe it's medical, maybe it's adult use, whatever it is, but there's a legalized movement. 70 plus percent of Americans in a country that can't really decide who they want to have for a president, who they want to have for representatives, because look how close all these races are. Yeah, I've always believed that we have a representative government. I'm a political science major at heart. So it's right. kind of a head scratcher to me how a Senate staring at a 70 plus percent majority saying, please do this, is just saying, no, no, we know better than you. And we're not going to do this today. We're going to do something else, but we're not going to do this. But I still blame the media for the fact that they're the ones that can go and just confront all these politicians. If this banking, act, if the safe banking act comes into play and, you know, all of a sudden here comes all the major news networks deciding to go and report on it with no basis to understand what they're talking about anyway in the first place. Let's just make that point across clear. They're sure. not going to do the, the benefit of the, the general public to explain what this does. They're not going to explain the fact that all these major banking institutions, national associations supporting they want to work with cannabis companies badly. You know, obviously, we would love to go and see where uh, the statute 280E would be also go away as well. That's also also been considered and talked about. We are all this. And even when there are things that happen, like when President Biden said, oh, we're going to go ahead and, you know, we're going to pardon a number of these federally, federally convicted uh, marijuana offenders. Not, not a peep from the media. Nothing's being said. It's like they have their own thing. They're being paid off by somebody else. And I think that's something that also has to get built into. And also, I keep talking about when it comes to media portrayal. So, you know, all these different entertainment companies, oh, we'll keep doing shows that are based on the cannabis stereotype we've been having out there for years. But anything a little more legitimate or professional? No, not at all. We don't need, we need to be touching that. Nobody's going to watch that. Well, no, no, it's, it's, everybody, even, it's everybody out there just doing it. And they're just. You don't even get you know. the conversation about cannabis as an alternative to opioids which to right. me is the home run argument for cannabis every day. In fact, that's what got me into this industry. I was working for Columbia Care at the time. Their first dispensary was down in Washington, D.C., of all places. And, you know, they were always talk about how when they looked at the, the data for their customers, about 60% or so of those customers were HIV positive. They were using cannabis as an alternative to the opioids and benzos that were the standard of care, even though they had to come out of pocket 100% because the side effects were much more manageable. The cost was actually less, even though they were paying for 100%. So, and that's how you know there's gotta be someone behind this because how can you, we all know there's an opioid crisis. We hear about it. You never hear cannabis in the same conversation on a regular basis through those same news outlets as an alternative. And it's just unfortunate. I think it's a miss you know, for us not to be able to do more to try to wave that flag to say, why don't we wanna do this again? Absolutely. And I'll tell you this too, before we go to good break, and I'm going to make this point across the listeners, pay attention with all this going on here, all these different obstacles going into place for cannabis. There's more of an interest of what's happening here because you know, what's going to go ahead and, you know, in the race of finding legalization, you know, what's going to make it there first psychedelics. We've been talking about it here on cannabis yeah. radio the last year. We're going to see, because they all have to do is worry about the fact that we're getting they go have to go through FDA approval and they're working their way through. So like, if you're talking about opioids, 
cannabis could have been already that that answer. But for whatever reason, the lobbying dollars weren't there. The support wasn't there to get to D.C. or the media and have right media representation out there to downplay and to bash these stupid, you know, people behind the desks asking, you know, stupid questions anyway to change the narrative. Because what's going to happen is I just saw the other day live with uh, Kelly and uh, Ryan. This is a nationally syndicated program. They talked about psychedelics for about 15 minutes. I'm like, what? It's about ketamine. They're not doing this with cannabis. So if we want to make sure that the industry is going to have its spot and not be stuck in this, this quagmire that's going on right now, where DC is trying to do some things, but they're not necessarily, you know, they're, they're caught up with either the media narrative being a, a struggle or whatever. They just can't get the consensus to finally put something up to a vote of anything to support cannabis. Meanwhile, psychedelics doesn't have to worry about this. They can have a clean lane in. And psychedelics can be something that people will realize will be a factor in terms of uh, where it's, it's in a, you know, a psychoactive. That right there is going to take some precedent. It's going to take some of the headlines off of cannabis. And psychedelics, for whatever reason, the, the news is going to be able to be a little more impressionable to it. They're going to actually be maybe a little bit more friendly to talking about it. That's not good for cannabis. People need to pay attention to that and be aware of what's going on because that's something that might happen this year. Pay attention and make that point because psychedelic drugs are coming and they're getting closer to FDA approval. There's a lot of reports being said. We already know that the Johns Hopkins of the world, the Stanford's, there's you know a lot of various researchers in London and Israel that are doing the work on here at the same time. The same things that are supposed to be treatment solutions that cannabis provides. Do we want to lose that spot? That's what the cannabis industry needs to pay attention to. Very important this year. I wanted to make that point. If you want to make a comment on here, Gary, please feel free. I just wanted to, I, I thought that was important to give to the audience. No, I think it's a fair point because, I mean, the use cases are dramatically different. It is true that there's some crossover. Yeah. But when you think about the use of psycho, psychedelics and psychoactive agents, you know, you can see that for things like PTSD, it makes sense under very, very controlled conditions. I don't know that self-medicating through psychedelics is, is something that's going to you know be capable. Maybe it will. I don't know. But you know, I think you're right, though. Cannabis really has not done a good enough job talking through the different use cases because the early days it was about price and potency, and the demographic was the 20 late 20s, early 30s male with the flat brim baseball cap, very episodic. You know, right. really looking to go out. Um, they're not really going down that other path, which I think when you look at the whole, uh, you know, the the eastern part of the country they actually have looked at cannabis from that way. They're looking at it from controlling anxiety or joint pain. So we do need to get on level ground and talk about the uses for cannabis. And it's okay to have medicinal uses for cannabis. You're not selling out when you say that, oh, I use it for joint pain. You know, you can still go and do other things, but you know, I think we need to stop walking away from the medical side and start to come back to it a little bit. Correct. Well said. Here with Gary Santos, CEO of Tilt Holdings. Website is tiltholdings.com. On the OTC markets, if you're looking into the stock ticker symbol, it is TLLTF. We talked earlier about the work, your partnership with the Shinnecock Nation of Long Island, but there's more to the social equity story that you have there at Tilt Holdings. I want to talk about that after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. We're back with final questions with Gary Santos, CEO of Tilt Holdings here in Blunt Business. And Gary, really appreciate you. Uh, let me go through about the various issues right there when it comes to legalization, when it comes to the obstacles that continue to be a hampering with the industry right now. 
But nevertheless, one of the things that's always talked about with the, the, the industry has been pretty good at, I'll give credit where credit's due, especially with a company like Tilt Holdings, is your work of putting social equity, uh, Black-owned and women-owned brands at the center in unique ways. We talked about the Shinnecock Nation. And one thing to add to it is the fact that you have an indigenous woman of color, Shanae Bullock, who is now leading the Little Beach Harvest Cannabis business, the new dispensary opening that you just spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. You're also jettisoning new companies' tech brands and a new brand partner business model, uh, prioritizing licensing distribution partnerships with uh, BIPOC and women-led brands. We talk about Heisman, Ricky Williams, Black Buddha with Roz McCarthy, Her Highness with Laura Eisman and Allison Congrad. You're completely rebooting grow operations in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania with an increase in flower quality and allowing new flower first partners like Old Pal. We've talked about them on grassroots marketing. And previously, all male leadership now with key female hires in critical roles of marketing, investor relations, and corporate development. So I, I obviously I made the commendation that I commended you for the fact that indigenous and native Americans are in the conversation of social equity, but I mean, talk to me about the fact that you're able to put that full spectrum of social equity into play. Yeah. I think from our perspective, it's about being intentional, right? I mean, how many companies out there talk about social equity and talk about working to help expunge cannabis records, but then don't hire anybody who had a nonviolent cannabis offense. So as we sat down as a leadership team, we wanted to be cast as wide a net as possible because we didn't want to find ourselves limited to the typical stereotypes of what social equity may or may not be. And we certainly talked about indigenous peoples versus, you know, black, brown and others. And I think that's really how we've tried to build this this company. You know, I think we, we look first at talent, but then at the same time, I'm looking to make sure we're as diverse as possible. So I love the fact that we lean in heavily to making sure we have women uh, you know, in our leadership teams, making sure that we have people of color in our leadership teams in meaningful positions, not just, oh, I hired somebody of color to be the head of DEI. That's not good enough. You know, uh, you know we, we've got to go, we're, we can be better than that. And as we look across the brand partners we work with, you, know, you heard me say earlier about depth of brand architecture. You look at some of the social equity applicants out there and they're just a natural born depth of, of product architecture. There's a story there. There's, there's a brand authenticity there that you're not going to find in celebrity cannabis. So for us, it's just basically being who we are is causing us to lean into these relationships. I can't say we set out to do this at the outset and said, hey, let's be this sort of beacon. Let's really embrace this. It's just happened that way. And as we've seen the path develop in front of us, it really tells us that this is the kind of an industry, one of the few industries where I do think social equity can take hold. I do think we can see a lot more you know, uh, equitable treatment across the board at various levels. It doesn't have to be everybody is running a company. It could be wherever you want to be inside the industry. There's so many places to plug into. You know, at MJ Biz just recently, when I walked that, that floor, it's amazing how many ancillary businesses there are now touching cannabis beyond yeah. just the people who grow. So well, it's exciting for us. I, I, I'm proud every time I, I look down our roster, every time we do our town hall meetings, every time we sign a new brand. I think the latest brand we signed, what, Coda out of Colorado, another female-owned, female-run brand. Yeah. So that, that's fun and exciting to us. Fantastic. A lot of great work, Gary. Really appreciate you taking time out to go and let us know all about that and answer some real tough questions on mine. I really appreciate you talking to us. Again, tiltholdings.com, T-I-L-T, holdings.com. And... Real quick, for those that want to go ahead and work with you, either from the investor side or just learn more about what's going on, uh, tell us also about any social media that you have out there and 
Uh, anything else that's on the horizon for Tilt Holdings? Sure. I think if you go out to our website, which is www.tiltholdings.com, you can pretty much find all the connection links you might want to have for investors. Uh, you can reach out to our head of investor relations, Liam Ricci. Uh, we're on a number of social platforms. Uh, that said, social kind of gets away from me a little bit, so I don't yeah. know all the different hashtags we have. Um, but I think you'll find that all on our website. And we're really good, I think, at putting the word out for new partnerships and uh, new developments that we have coming along. I think for a while, the company was sort of quiet as it was figuring its way in early 2020. Uh, but I think now that we've got our strategy locked and loaded, there's been a pretty steady flow of news. You can sign up for any of our updates from our websites. This way, any any kind of press releases or or events that we're holding, uh, you'll get notified on. So on the social media and it's twi- uh, on Twitter, it's at Tilt underscore holdings, at Tilt Holdings on Instagram and LinkedIn. Gary, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for listening to another Blunt Business. We'll talk to you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.